Hello and welcome to the Clinical Care Options in Global Medical Education Neurology and Psychiatry Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Lisa Phipps. Today's episode features Dr. Leslie Citrone, Clinical Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at New York Medical College in Valhalla, New York, and Dr. Manpreet Singh, Associate Professor of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Stanford University in Stanford, California. They will be discussing diagnostic dilemmas in differentiating unipolar and bipolar depression. This episode is part of a larger educational program entitled Recent Advances in the Management of Bipolar Depression. For more information on Dr. Citrome and Dr. Singh, along with links to other bipolar depression programs, including other podcasts and clinical thought medical commentaries, please visit the show notes. Now let's get started and hear what these experts have to say about this important topic. Dr. Singh, uh, you know, it's always a pleasure talking with you about various topics, and this one is dear to both our hearts, MDD and bipolar depression. Why is it important to differentiate major depressive disorder from bipolar depression? Dr. Sutram, it's great to be here with you today as well. Um, I've missed our conversations, and this is an important topic. You know, although there's some Still in unanswered questions, we have accumulated much evidence that unipolar major depressive disorder and bipolar depression have different etiologies, epidemiologies, clinical characteristics, underlying pathophysiological mechanisms for progression. And I would say most importantly, they have different treatments. So we've recently, our group's recently published some new evidence comparing healthy youth offspring of parents with bipolar disorder to healthy offspring of parents with major depression and psychiatrically healthy controls. And what we've demonstrated recently is that even before the onset of any symptoms, there's biological differences in the brains of these youth uh, during rest and during emotion and reward processing tasks while in an MRI scanner. These studies mirror familial aggregation patterns that also suggest really independent familial patterns um, so that bipolar disorder and uh, depression, uh, unipolar depression, are considered to be very much uh, unique and uh, have their own patterns of onset and familial aggregation. Bipolar disorder, in my view, uh, for these reasons, likely has distinct underlying pathways rather than increasingly severe manifestations of depression or a common underlying diathesis, even though you see some overlap in symptoms. So I think it's very important for us to think about ways to differentiate uh, major depressive disorder from bipolar depression. Would you agree? Yes, indeed. You know, it's really difficult to distinguish MDD from bipolar depression if we just look on cross-section. So on cross-sectional examination, we know they look the same. The definition for a major depressive episode is actually identical for major depressive disorder, bipolar type 1 or bipolar type 2. And major depressive episodes can occur in all of these entities. And they're quite distinct longitudinally. As you pointed out, they have different neurobiological origins and, and pathways. So the only way really to distinguish MDD versus bipolar depression is by this longitudinal history that we can get clinically. With major depressive disorder, of course, there's no history of any mania or any hypomanic episodes in that person's life. And in bipolar type 1, they must have a history of at least one manic episode. And for bipolar type 2, 
they must have a history of at least one hypomanic episode and no history of ever having a manic episode. Now, this gets tricky. Differentiating by history alone, mania versus hypomania is a challenge in itself. And then there's a subset, actually, quite interesting, of bipolar type 1 patients who've never had a depressive episode. They're kind of rare. Uh, they can you know, they can just have manic episodes, never have a depressive episode and, and meet the criteria of bipolar type one. This is not the case for bipolar type two, where it's essential to have depressive episodes together with that history of hypomania. So a little nuance there in differential diagnosis in bipolar disorder. And what makes it especially hard is this mania or hypomania is often not reported by patients. They don't necessarily have insight that this was something bad or that uh, you know should be uh, talked about, or they may not even realize that you know they've had that. Uh, they they may be clueless about it. It's it's really quite interesting. However, family members will be able to tell you that history quite well. It would often leads uh, manic behavior leads to uh, very uh, disastrous consequences, and they won't forget about those. And then we can take a look at the ratio of depressive episodes to manic episodes or depressive episodes to hypomanic episodes. And it's really under most situations, many more depressive episodes to mania or hypomania in terms of what's happening in that patient's life longitudinally. So they're more likely to talk about depression in the first place. Number one, they have more insight into depression. Number two, they have more depressive episodes than manic episodes anyway. So very hard to, to figure out. And then there's a new twist in DSM-5. So this adds to the complication of distinguishing MDD from bipolar depression. That is the existence of the mixed feature specifier. Incredibly helpful in clinical work, but can make it confusing to make a clear diagnosis because you can actually have major depressive disorder with the mixed feature specifier and it could be quite confusing what to do next. What are your favorite clues when figuring out, is it MDD or bipolar depression? You know, I totally agree with you about the difficulties in distinguishing MDD from bipolar depression and the mixed features um, certainly blur the boundaries um, that we are trying and attempting to, um, to utilize as ways of distinguishing these clinical syndromes. <laughs> I think that the symptom profiles are certainly fun to consider. Uh, you know, would you hedge your bets on the quality of the irritability to decide one way or another? Irritability is transdiagnostic and using it to make diagnostic distinctions doesn't work in isolation of other symptoms. And sometimes the picture is evolving, so it can be hard to tell. In those instances, I always want to see the patient again to get more data to sample. And symptoms of major depressive episode per se aren't qualitatively different from bipolar versus unipolar depression, as you stated. The, the criteria are exactly the same. But you might imagine that in bipolar depression, there might be more atypical features like hypersomnia, hyperphagia, or lethargy. Bipolar depressions tend to be brief and recurrent, whereas unipolar depressions often last longer and are uninterrupted with median episode durations even up to upwards of 13 weeks. Psychotic depression is another risk factor for polarity conversion, which might also 
clue me in, in terms of clinical cues towards a bipolar type of syndrome versus unipolar. And of course, as you well said, you must have a history of at least one lifetime manic or hypomanic episode to meet criteria for bipolar disorder. So then I focus on the symptoms that distinguish bipolar from unipolar depression. Ruling out mania enables you to take most of the time then to consider the alternatives. So I focus on ruling out that manic episode. Very often I can do that and then at least then get into the business of trying to figure out, am I dealing with hypomania or um, a unipolar uh, syndrome. Bipolar disorder, as, as you've already also said, is defined by at least one lifetime manic or hypomanic episode that lasts usually days to weeks, not minutes to hours. And the triggers are chronobiological, sleep deprivation, crossing time zones, not just simply some interpersonal, transient interpersonal conflict. And core features of mania include things like high energy and psychomotor activation. So those kinds of clinical clues are very useful. Moment to moment mood instability in itself, in contrast, is not a defining symptom. And usual age of onset um, is, for mania is late teens to early 20s. It's rarely a new onset after the age of 40. So you know, it's important to consider possible unrecognized earlier episodes in patients who present later in life, a retrospective scope, I suppose you could say. Um, but the other thing that I think about in terms of clinical clues that I find very helpful are family history. Even though it's not diagnostic, a first degree relative can increase your risk for developing mania anywhere between 10 to 25 percent. And it's helpful to obtain collateral history from family members to get an additional sense of it. Of course, bipolar disorder runs with other conditions like anxiety, substance use, personality disorders, ADHD, OCD, among others. Those things complicate the picture too. Ultimately, I always try to remind myself that anyone who walks through my office door with any mood symptoms at all should get an assessment of depression and mania. Otherwise, there's a strong chance you're going to miss a bipolar diagnosis. And if you don't ask, Bipolar disorder will likely persist until it's finally recognized, but many clinicians might not bother asking about it because they reason that it's so rare. So why bother? So what rating scales do you routinely use in your clinical practice, Dr. Sutrom? Maybe you can speak to some of the more recent quick assessments that have been published uh, to help clinicians make that evaluation. Well, you know, Dr. Singh, I've been a big fan of instruments that help us systematically ask the right questions. If we depend just on, you know, how we do things routinely, we may miss things now and again. Uh, also, patients may not respond to your questions in a way that you would like. You know, they, they may be embarrassed. If you're meeting them for the first time, they may not reveal to you things that are of interest and importance in making a differential diagnosis, but they, they feel they, they don't know you well enough. And oddly enough, uh, patients will fill out a form honestly and will be more likely to address the questions on a form in a way that is useful than if you ask those same questions. It's really interesting to, to note this. I do a fair number of assessments on people I'm meeting for the first time. And it's very helpful for me to say, okay, I'd like you to fill out this form. There's no right or wrong answers. It's just how you've been feeling over the past couple of weeks or what you've experienced in the past. And they take it in stride and they fill that out and I get my answers that I need. 
So there's two things that I do routinely. One is the PHQ-9 to assess anyone's level of depressive symptomatology and how it impacts their functioning. Actually, it should be called the PHQ-10 because there's actually 10 questions there, but that's a minor quibble. The, the nine questions, principal questions in the PHQ-9 are those same symptoms in DSM-5 regarding depression. So that's important to get a good sense of what they have. It also gives you an idea of how severely depressed they are. And then at the same time, the MDQ has been my favorite for years, although there, there's a new one that I'd like to talk about, a new screener in just a moment. But the MDQ is something that most of us have been familiar with because it's been around for a while. It, ex it consists of 13 yes or no questions regarding has there ever been a period of time when the person was not their usual self and they experienced things like feeling more self-confident than usual or more irritable or having more energy or more interested in sex than usual. And by the way, that question is hard to ask for someone who you're meeting for the first time. And it's hard for that person to answer honestly if they're meeting you for the first time. But it's much easier if it's on a form. So the MDQ asks these questions, some of them hard to ask and some of them hard to remember to ask, but it does so. Uh, and this is a systematic way of assessing this. And there's a couple of other questions regarding if they have endorsed any of those uh, experiences, whether or not it's happened uh, during the same period of time and, and uh, was it uh, creating a problem for them. And this is going to guide you into asking more questions about bipolar disorder, about mania, hypomania, family history, and so on, it clues you in that this is going to be an important topic clinically. The other thing I do is uh, also assess their medication history quite carefully. And if they have a history of uh, lack of adequate response or even worsening on, let's say, an antidepressant monotherapy, uh, I'm going to use that as a diagnostic clue. And for years, we weren't actually permitted to use this as part of the diagnosis of bipolar disorder. It was only like an accessory bit of information, but now DSM-5 includes it as a criteria. If a person actually flips into mania uh, or you know, uh, has a worsening of, of manic symptoms or whatnot, however it's worded in the DSM-5, this allows you to use that information diagnostically. But I'd like to say a few words about a new instrument called the Rapid Mood Screener. And the key word here is rapid. It's six items. They're yes or no responses. And it asks about periods of time of not only like manic-like features, but also depression. So it covers both. Have there ever been at least six different periods of time, at least two weeks when you felt deeply depressed? Yes or no. So that addresses the cyclicity of the bipolar uh, disorder that the person may be experiencing with with lots of depressive episodes, which would be unusual for someone with regular plain vanilla major depressive disorder. Did you have problems with depression before the age of 18 is another question. And that addresses the younger age of onset that is more typical for someone with bipolar disorder than MDD. And then have you ever had to stop or change your antidepressant because it made you highly irritable or hyper is another question. So that's now included in the RMS, and you can like address depression, uh, history of, and uh, the antidepressant response with this rapid mood screener. The other three questions in the series of six is, have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you were more talkative than normal uh, with thoughts racing in your head? Uh, 
Have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you felt any of the following, unusually happy, unusually outgoing, or unusually energetic? The key word here is unusual. So this would be different from their usual self. And then have you ever had a period of at least one week during which you needed much less sleep than usual? And the key words here is needed much less sleep, not couldn't sleep, needed to sleep less, or didn't need to sleep, basically, because they were full of energy. Qualitatively, that's a very different experience than insomnia. And these are uh, periods of time where people just didn't really need to sleep. They, you know, they could get by with just a couple of hours a night, which is not their usual way of, of operating. So the RMS, Rapid Move Screener, it may be a useful alternative to the MDQ. It's just a screener, though. It doesn't absolve you from the responsibility of asking the questions to make the diagnosis, doing a good clinical evaluation, but it helps get that fundamental knowledge uh, from the patient who may be otherwise reluctant to tell you face-to-face, -face, especially if you're meeting them for the first time, as I mentioned before. The sensitivity and specificity uh, is very good and on par with the MDQ in terms of what you need to get at. So I'm, I'm encouraged about having these tools. I've been a fan of these tools, and I'm looking forward to getting more experience with the RMS. It's, it's relatively new. So, uh, you know, this brings us uh, to another question. I've always had this question on my mind. How can we reduce the chances of missing mania, uh, particularly in a history? What can we possibly do to uncover every stone? It's a great question. And hey, you got to start with asking about mania, because by not asking, you'll definitely increase your chances of missing it. Patients can often tell when something is not right, and even more so, family members can really see the impact of a manic episode on daily life, um, skills, uh, functioning. But poor insight is also a key symptom of mania, and denial is not just another river in Egypt. So you have to do the due diligence to ask, unless you just demonstrated by um, by listing off some very key questions, that it's very easy to simply ask those questions and it doesn't take that much time at all. A comprehensive mood assessment, if done carefully and thoughtfully, does include the full spectrum of positive and negative valence symptoms so that you can get a full picture of what indeed is going on with the patient. So you've definitely got to ask about mania. And some questions, as we are alluding to here in our conversation today, are just more high yield than others. And so focusing on those um, to begin with as a way to screen um, and, and prompt you to maybe delve in deeper can allow you in your busy practice to, if you're ruling it out, then move on uh, to the to the heart of the problem that the patient is presenting with. But you have to be cautious because insight is poor for a lot of people. So you've got to figure out some tricks of the trade to be able to um, assess for symptoms, even when they may not be obvious to patients. And certainly clinical observation can help with that too. You know, one of the uh, special issues that we have sometimes or more difficult issues or challenges is children and adolescents. Uh, how can we best differentiate MDD from bipolar depression, from ADHD, and anything else that um, makes it for confusing uh, diagnostic dilemmas in children? Uh, what, what do you What do you do? 
Yeah, another great question. Um, because for about two thirds of adults with bipolar disorder, the onset uh, retrospectively occurred uh, sometime during childhood and adolescence, most commonly adolescence. And irritability tends to be a prominent feature of early onset bipolar disorder and characteristic of childhood depressive episodes and associated with more impairment and elevated mood states, but it is transdiagnostic. It doesn't just occur in depression, but occurs in many other psychiatric syndromes. So it makes it a, a, a challenging symptom to do the due diligence of delineation. Nevertheless, I think classic mania can present at any point in anyone's lives. And we're noticing that it's occurring early and earlier. Uh, and perhaps there's genetic anticipation or other theories that are being circulated as to why we're observing this phenomenon earlier. Um, and certainly early onset bipolar disorder is associated with worse long-term prognosis and increased risk for suicide compared to adult onset bipolar disorder. In fact, bipolar depression is more common than mania in younger patients, and depression is often the first episode. And bipolar disorder in youth is usually accompanied, as you said, by co-occurring conditions. Sometimes they're prodromes, like ADHD or anxiety, other uh, that then run alongside the manic uh, syndrome and can complicate the diagnostic picture. So being curious about the relations among symptoms, how they parse or, or um, uh, distinguish themselves from other conditions is very important. And co-occurring conditions frequently associated with childhood onset bipolar disorder, the common contenders, we already talked about ADHD, disruptive behavioral disorders uh, and, and anxiety, sometimes tics, psychosis, and substance use. And ADHD occurs more often in patients with a childhood onset, whereas substance abuse tends to occur more often with an adolescent onset in terms of comorbid patterns. Um, but there are some very clear distinctions between bipolar disorder as a clinical syndrome in kids and ADHD. Kids with ADHD tend to be um, tend to have fun for the sake of fun. Uh, whereas kids with a bipolar disorder qualitatively um, look for a thrill. There are other qualitative uh, observations that we've made clinically, and these are anecdotal, but they, they carry meaning in terms of understanding the differences between bread and butter ADHD that often responds to a psychostimulant, um, whereas bipolar disorder tends, tends not to until your first mood stabilized. Um, other other examples, hypersexuality doesn't tend to be uh, part of the ADHD syndrome classically, but can be uh, in bipolar disorder. And, and kids tend to um, be distracted externally. Uh, so it's the, it's the pencil uh, twirling in uh, the kid next door or the construction rig, uh, you know, uh, outside that's distracting a kid with ADHD. Whereas a kid with bipolar disorder will often report that they're distracted by their thoughts uh, that are often racing. So it's an internal distraction. So some of those uh, clinical features can often be helpful to guide those distinctions um, and um, humbly appreciating that these uh, conditions can also very commonly run together. But classically, manic symptoms, um, high energy, impulsivity, uh, explosive anger or irritability are usually the reason for kids to seek treatment, whereas more subtle symptoms of anhedonia and fatigue 
uh, in the bipolar depression um, phase uh, uh, can, can often be missed. And irritability can sometimes be mistaken as mania and not recognized as a symptom of depression. So it's very important to understand how the symptoms that are being evaluated relate to other symptoms. And that, that's why it's so important to look at Siggy Katz and DigFast DSM criteria for these conditions because they can help to see what hangs together. Depressive episodes are less common in younger children, but depressive symptoms can intermingle with manic symptoms and go unreported. So mixed features and mixed um, subtypes are often very commonly observed in kids. The other thing to just note about um, pediatric bipolar manifestations that the clinical severity uh, in bipolar disorder is, is greater than unipolar depression and is associated with very significant functional impairments. Um, well-being is compromised to a high degree. There's increased levels of anxiety, increased suicidal ideation. It's almost an amping up. But as I mentioned before, it's not just... Uh, you know, bipolar disorder isn't just a more severe form of major depression. So what I think of when I look at children with presenting with depressive symptoms is I want to just make sure that I ask very quickly some screening questions about mania, rule it out, and then move on to my uh, assessment and treatment of depression because um, the treatment for depression uh, is very different from the treatment for bipolar disorder which is segues to my next question to you, Dr. Citron, is what implications does getting that diagnosis right have on treatment planning? Well, you know, that's an incredibly important question because that's why we're spending all this time with the differential diagnosis. And uh, thank you, Dr. Singh, for taking us through a very comprehensive look at uh, adolescent uh, differential diagnosis considerations. And uh, Boy, it's a lot of things to, to think about. You know, one of the things I find handy just to remind myself is ADHD kids tend to sleep at night and bipolar kids don't. And uh, it's often a complaint to parents that their child is, is just not sleeping at night. And that can be extremely disruptive. And so the key word here, disruptive, uh, also uh, plays into the differential diagnosis. And uh, children with bipolar disorder can be incredibly disruptive to the family life. ADHD, they can manage. Bipolar, not so much. Great point. Yeah. So the differential diagnosis actually uh, plays uh, a very big role in treatment planning in terms of uh, uh, other aspects of care that you want to offer to families as well, uh, counseling, psychoeducation, and so on. But let's get down to the medication treatment. Medication treatment for MDD and medication treatment for bipolar depression are different. And what's even more important is that treatments for MDD can make bipolar depression worse. Boy, think about that. If you make a mistake in your differential diagnosis and you give the wrong treatment, uh, the patient at best would you know, show no change. And at worst, they can flip into mania. It's the last thing you want. Uh, having a manic episode can be terribly disruptive. And although that doesn't really happen that often, all it has to happen is once in your career and you'll never forget it and you'll really want to avoid it. So I, I am very careful about this. And if I get a history of non-response or worsen response to uh, antidepressant that should be working, then I'm thinking bipolar. So the diagnosis 
will drive the treatment. And treatments for bipolar depression, right now the FDA has approved only four options. Now, fifth one is on the way, and that's about it. And that's in stark contrast to the treatments available for MDD, which are you know, many, many, many to choose from. It's highly genericized. And there's a temptation to say, okay, well, we'll just give an SSRI or SNRI for this depressed person. But one out of four, one out of five depressed people don't have MDD. They have bipolar depression. And you give them an SSRI or SNRI, chances are they won't get any better. Or if they do show an improvement, it won't be uh, very durable. And at worst, they'll flip into mania or have um, mood and more mood instability or become more irritable and so on. And it's a problem. This is particularly true for kids, uh, Dr. Citrum. Uh, the likelihood of activation from antidepressants um, it just goes up um, the younger you are. Yeah. So you that's the big implication. You'll you'll give the incorrect treatment. Now we've been making mistakes like this for years. I know I have when getting patients referred to me for evaluation of their treatment-resistant depression. In the past, I went along with that without thinking much about it and would try all sorts of augmentation strategies. None of them would work until I reached for the second generation antipsychotics, and then lo and behold, I was treating their treatment-resistant depression, when in fact, what I probably was doing was finally giving them something that worked for their bipolar depression. The FDA has approved uh, four different options, as I mentioned. The lanspine-fluoxetine combination was the first one. Uh, quetiapine was the second. And, and then we, we got lorazidone, either as a monotherapy or adjunctive with lithium or valproid, and now cariprazine. The latter two are branded, uh, but the latter two are also better tolerated metabolically. So that's an important consideration, too. But coming back to the differential diagnosis and its implications on treatment, we do have a parallel in psychiatry that's pretty apt. And I'd like to mention it because it's also dear to my heart, and that's tardive dyskinesia. And if we make a mistake and uh, confuse tardive dyskinesia with, let's say, drug-induced Parkinsonism and give benztropine, that can actually make tardive dyskinesia worse. So we have situations in psychiatry where it really does matter what the diagnosis is, even though the presentation, you know, is somewhat similar. So a movement disorder, not all movement disorders are drug-induced Parkinsonism, and not all depression is major depressive disorder. So keeping that in mind will help us choose the right treatment. And uh, that's what it's all about, getting our patients better. You bet. And I would just add that for kids, FDA approves for bipolar depression, uh, bipolar one depression, uh, lorazidone and uh, olanzapine fluoxetine combination. So those are the two currently approved for bipolar one depression in, in youth down to age 10. Well, that's great. You know, this about wraps it up for this podcast. Uh, it's been great talking with you, Dr. Singh, again, and look forward to having another chat in the future. It's my sincere pleasure, Dr. Citrum. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Dr. Citrum and Dr. Singh, for your wonderful conversation. And thanks to you, the listeners, for joining us. As a reminder, to view other programs on bipolar disorder, please click on the link in the show notes. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.